This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Radar, our monthly podcast of our Nextworks crew. I'm here today with uh, Julie. Hey, Julie. Hey, Stephen. We have Laurence here. Good morning. I have Pascal. Hi, Stephen. And Peter is here as well. Hello, Peter. Hello, hello. So we're here with the full crew. We have a lot of content to share with you as we do every month. I'm going to kick off by talking about the most successful artist of this moment, I think, which is Taylor Swift. And this week, it was in the news that Taylor became a unicorn. She is worth more than one billion. And if you dive into the statistics of her business model, it's actually super impressive. So if you look, for instance, to concert and ticket sales, she has an annual revenue of 370 million just with the ticket sales. And to give you an idea, in the US alone, when she opened up her, her ticket sales, she sold 2.4 million tickets in one day. It's super, super incredible. And what you see is that the average spend of a fan on her concerts is just amazing. If you take everything into account, so the, the ticket, which is sometimes bought secondhand, uh, like an, a normal ticket price is like 250, 280 US dollars. But on eBay and on other platforms, they go from for thousands of dollars. But on average, travel, the ticket and merchandise, an average fan spends about 1,300 to 1,500 US dollars a person which is insane huh? if you think about that. So that's one part of her wealth. The other one is her music catalog, her portfolio of her own music, which is worth about 400 million at this time. And, and she's obsessed with that. Eh? She wants her own catalog. She wants to own it herself, not like the Beatles who sold it to Michael Jackson, but she wants to own it. And a couple of years ago, she launched an album called 1989. But previous managers of her, they sold the rights of that album to a uh, private equity firm. And she wants control of her entire catalog. And so what she did is she completely re-released that album a few weeks ago. Her fans already own that album, but most of them just bought it again to support her in her journey to own that portfolio. So now the sales of this re-release is already higher than the sales of the first release. So you see how she's obsessed with her own portfolio, but how fans support that as well, which is really impressive. Then she has money from streaming, about 120 million a year. She has some personal properties, some houses worth 110 million, and then still record sales, uh, record sales, 80 million. So extremely, extremely successful, truly impressive, uh, not just an artist, but also a business lady. And if you look at the way how she manages her fan engagement, uh, that was what fascinated me, the, the way that she reaches out to her fans and how she does her marketing is really unique. I learned about this from my good friend Ken Hughes, which is also a customer experience writer and speaker. He's a huge fan of her. And in his keynotes, he always talks about the song Antihero, which is a song about the things you don't like about yourself. So she's very open. She puts a lot of personal stuff in her songs. And Antihero is about the things she doesn't like. Now, most artists just put out a video on YouTube and they say, look, this is my new song. Of course, Taylor Swift did as well, but she also launched some short videos on YouTube in which she talked about and sung about some of the things she dislikes about herself, some small things, and she invited her fans to do the same. So as from that moment, there was like a tsunami of people, fans who started to make YouTube shorts about this song, just sharing things that they didn't like about themselves, 
while the music of the song was playing. So the amount of free advertisement from this co-creation campaign was incredible. And what she does in a very smart way is what they call scale the unscalable. She actually likes posts of her fans. She replies to them. And the moment when she replies to a post, the first thing those people do is they take a screenshot of that and they share it on all their platforms saying, oh my God, Taylor replied to my post here. She read your which book? Is cr- <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she read the conversation manager when she was uh, 15 or so. Huh? so it's, <laughs> you, you can really tell that she implies that philosophy. But it's incredible. Huh? And At certain parts in her career, some people ask her crazy things on Twitter or Instagram. Like people say, hey, Taylor, I'm getting married next week. Why don't you come over and sing a few of your songs on my wedding party? And now and then she actually does that. So now and then she actually crashes at a wedding party and starts to sing there. If you think about that, that's very crazy because four hours of her time is extremely valuable. And she invests that in something very small to make one fan happy. But the spotlight that is placed on that action reinforces her brand image completely. What I like about her is that she makes a difference, in my opinion, between ROI from a micro perspective versus a macro perspective. Not everything that she does needs to be ROI positive. She can do small things that are ROI negative, but she knows that by doing that in the long run, it increases her opportunity to be ROI positive from a macro perspective. And if you link this back to the business world, this is something that I see a lot in customer experience going wrong. A lot of companies are so obsessed that everything they do needs to be ROI positive, that they talk about it for ages and then they say, nah, we're not gonna do it. It's not scalable, we're not gonna do that. So let's not invest in that. But by thinking in that way, you actually reduce the chances of that in-depth engagement with with fans and with customers. So the philosophy of making those decisions, doing small things to support people, for her in the long run, that creates a really in-depth kind of customer loyalty that most brands can be jealous of. And she's also super, super smart. Uh, Like she got criticized for flying with a private jet from one concert to another. Uh, People were saying that's not really a smart thing to do in terms of sustainability. So there was a lot of bad press about that. So she wanted to remove that from the internet, which is very difficult. So what she did is she made sure that everyone would see and everyone would know that she went to a game of the New York Jets. And there was a lot of advertisement around that. There was a lot of posting around that. So if you do a Taylor Swift search now, you will see that she went to a game of the New York Jets. So the whole bad publicity about the private jet is now not as prominent anymore in a Google search, which is like a brilliant way of solving that. Last thing that I want to mention about her smart marketing is her collaborations. Uh, She does a lot of collabs with a wide, wide range of artists, like from Ed Sheeran to Shawn Mendes. It goes very, very broad. And she's been doing that since the early start of her career. So basically because of that, what you saw is that she reaches out to other audiences than her own audience. And by doing so, you broaden your own circle of interest all the time. And it's it's something, Julie, that we discussed in one of the previous radars, like the philosophy of Barbie. Remember, we talked about the Barbie movie. Mm-hmm. They did so many collabs to get in all these networks of all those brands. And by doing so, suddenly you almost reach everyone. But this is basically the philosophy that Taylor Swift is using as well to reach her or to increase her network size. So... Very impressive. Have you guys seen the movie? I haven't seen it yet. I'm I'm waiting that until it's on a plane's entertainment system, but it's still not. I'm waiting there. for your contributions, Steve. Yeah, I'm really I, looking I, forward I, to it. 
I hope next month that I will be able to say that I saw it on a, on a plane. Because you talked about Taylor Swift trying to remove something from the internet that's not popular. Do you remember how that was called before? There was another celebrity that tried to remove something and they were not very smart about it and it completely backfired. No, no, no idea. It's called, the, I think, the Barbara Streisand effect. Um, there was, <laughs> About her house, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Do you remember, Peter? I, I don't remember what she did exactly and what she wanted to remove, but I know that she tried to remove it and then suddenly everybody started sharing about it on social media and it completely backfired. It was her a property in, in California, which was a, a beachfront property. And there was a survey done, I think some sort of a geological survey where there were trying to figure out which part of the California coastline was going to fall into the ocean. And they did a complete survey of all the houses there with drones and everything, and including her house. <laughs> and nobody would have noticed that, but uh -huh. she actually saw that her house was there. And then she made a big fuss about the fact that she wanted it removed. <laughs> but by talking about it, everybody went to that geological <laughs> website to see Barbara Streisand's <laughs> house. So that's, that's basically what happened. So these things can easily backfire. Yeah. <laughs> the art of stories, beautiful. Yeah. But Stephen, to your point, I, I don't think when I hear your story about Taylor Swift, I mean, why do you say she's a unicorn? Uh, because her value of everything, if you add it up, it's more than one billion dollars of uh, worth. She's worth more I, than I a billion. I think it's it's a lot more than that. Well, yeah, it's her personal wealth. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's her more, personal yeah. wealth. Yeah. I mean, if you add the revenue, if you look at the revenues, it's a lot more, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. if you would do a multiple on EBITDA or you would do a multiple yeah. on revenues, she's not going to be a unicorn. She's going to be, you know, a, a decadorn or whatever you call it. Yeah, but, no, you know, no, you're <clears> right. Absolutely. This is, Absolutely. I mean, I, that, I, that's probably me with my financial background speaking, but it's it's more than a unicorn. No, no, you're absolutely right. What is fascinating for me is two things. One, as you said, she's a really, really clever businesswoman. And I think she could probably use even more financial engineering to bring that to a higher level. And I've always been wondered that not more celebrities actually do that. So in this world of finance, which is evolving so quickly, I think we could see a lot of new things coming out of people like Taylor Swift, also in financial innovation and creativity. Do you know which was the first big celebrity that actually put their entire album into a bond? No, no, no idea. David Bowie. Ah. Uh, it's actually an instrument called the, the Bowie Bonds. So in 1997, David Bowie actually did something really weird. He took his entire portfolio of songs and said, you know what, I'm going to package that up as an asset-backed security. So basically, he put it up as a bond, and he sold his entire catalog for, I think, $50 million at the time. And it was actually packaged as a financial instrument, as a bond, which paid an interest. I think the interest was 7% or 8% or something like that. And he used that to then actually be able to get a lot of money up front uh, because people could buy into the bond. Actually, the entire portfolio was then bought by an insurance company, Prudential Insurance in the US, uh, which is really funny. And these people just bought the bonds, which gave them 8% interest over 10 years time. So they did a good deal. But Bowie used that 
uh, to then you know, completely emphasis on new things and creativity and innovation. And it's still called the Bowie Bonds. Cool. And, and since then, a number of celebrities have done that. But I, I honestly believe that somebody like Taylor Swift with that amount of capital out there mm -hmm. could do things that are just mind-blowing in terms of financial innovation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, uh, this is probably not the last thing we've, we've heard no, from her. No, no, right? no, absolutely not. I mean, if you look at that, the influence, the, the crazy thing is now that politicians, I mean, presidents, they, they try to do whatever they can to make sure that she gives a concert in her country. So if she decides not to go to Thailand, you get the government from Thailand begging her in public, like, please come to Bangkok because yeah, of course. the people here want you here. And it's almost like a badge of honor as a politician if you can make sure that Taylor Swift comes to your country. It's, it's crazy. Of course, because it's no for the local economics, no? I mean, everybody uh, yeah, who goes to places, it's crazy what they spend. And, and so it's, it's, it's a <laughs> I don't boost think it's culturally, a just, it's a boost financially. Yeah. It's... Just yeah, a smart it's a good thing. Just, just one last thing maybe on uh, on Taylor Swift. I talked a lot about her marketing and, and fan engagement, but it's also quite impressive how she rewards her employees and the team. Like she's now traveling the world with her tour. And this year she gave 55 million in bonuses to her team that's on the road. And that's not just her management. Like she has 50 truck drivers, two teams of truck drivers going from building one stage and then removing another one. And, you know, two teams traveling, 50 trucks in total. Each of those truck drivers got a bonus of 100,000 uh, US dollars from her. Just everyone who's part of that crew will share in the success, which is also unseen in that business where, you know, an artist is so close to the entire team and everyone is part of the success. So it's just, I think, part of her personality to show attention and to give back to everyone who helps her to be successful, which is, is quite unique. It's a higher bonus, is what I read, than what some U.S. banks gave this year to their staff. Wow, <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Doing things well. But I was I was just thinking about it when you told the story also, Stephen. Like, she, she just seems a very, very good, positive person. And she sort of manages to everything that she touches is with a sort of, yeah, authenticity, transparency, human, you know? So it's, it's sort of... It seems like what's the return on her as a human being mm -hmm. uh, that everybody just loves. I just want to say something else about that. But um, one more thing on the on the concerts, etc. Like, what do you guys think the pandemic played as a role in all of this? Is it just because she's so good in what she does? Or is it also just because people just want to get out and have a great time after so many years of lockdowns, etc.? Have any idea of the impact of that? Or is it just coincidence? No, it's no coincidence. Huh? I, uh, of course, I think that what you see is that all major artists that are known for a top performance, those concerts sell out like crazy. Eh? You need to have a whole organizational system with your friends ready to even have a chance to get the tickets. I mean, you need to register up front and then you can get tickets. It's like the same with Tomorrowland or Coldplay, all these top A-level artists, they sell out in no time. I do think that she postponed the tour because of COVID so mm -hmm. that the fans had to wait a little longer to have the opportunity to see her. So that, of course, increased the hunger to yeah, make it to, to, to go there. I also noticed that like she doubled the amount of concerts that she did. So that also adds up there. That's that's pretty smart in terms of yeah. like um, <laughs> creating the, the, the momentum and you want to be there, etc. So... Uh, yeah, but it made me think like the positivity of the anti-hero, I guess, of the last uh, month also in the news was, uh, I don't know whether you guys read about WeWork and the fact that I was now bankrupt in, in the States. I actually looked up a little bit of uh, videos, etc., of their uh, former CEO, Adam Newman. 
Yeah. <laughs> not exactly somebody people love. <laughs> so, uh, that uh, people just really don't like the guy. And I'm fascinated, like, what, what's the difference in, in terms of success, etc.? Yeah, of course, you all have seen the WeWork story and, and maybe... We crashed on yeah, Apple TV. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I was waiting for the word to, to drop here. I would have guessed Peter would, uh, would join us there. But, uh, I mean, if you look at WeWork even before the pandemic, I mean, it was all about people are not going to be working in the workplace in an office, etc. And now we think that's all normal. But back in the days, WeWork was founded by the idea that that was not really the place where people just always wanted to be. And I think that's pretty nice as an ID. And if you look at the statistics, apparently, uh, even before the pandemic in 2019, 7% of all time is when people worked from home or somewhere else. So that was already a bit of a thing that was emerging year by year. But now, do you guys have any idea how many percentages of the time uh, people work from home? Peter? I've seen the statistics that the offices in the U.S. are only half occupied. So I would say 50%. Mm -hmm. Apparently it's 28%. Yeah. So it's a bit more moderated, probably because in uh, in cities, for example, it's larger indeed. It's uh, the, the more rural areas there, uh, people uh, get back to the office, of course, for commute, etc. Yeah. And in tech companies, it's, it's more extreme. Uh, if we went to L.A., They told us the companies that we went to, it was between two and eight percent who came to the office. I heard some tech entrepreneurs here in Belgium with offices in the US. They said the same thing. It's below 10 percent and it's impossible for them to get people back. Yeah. Yeah, but the 28% is, of course, an average of, yeah, of course, all groups. And and the things you're mentioning there, I think the evident conclusions, um, people don't want to be in traffic. Also, in terms of age groups, uh, people in their 30s, for example, are working from home more. That's like the kid effect, I would say. Younger people are going to the office more because they seek advice, they seek expertise. So we're, we're starting to sort of see the trends that are confirming sort of evident assumptions, I think. But I think it's nice to see that That sort of um, a pandemic, which is, of course, changed by disaster, sort of peaked the number working from home percentages so that now we're like one third of our time and maybe it will increase a bit more going forward as well. And we go back to that steady uh, increase. So I'm, I'm intrigued to see how that will come around. But um, maybe back to WeWork, uh, I think you would guess, I mean, in times of the pandemic, how did they not manage like Taylor Swift to make it a positive thing and something that they can thrive on? Of course, they were worth a staggering 45 billion in 2019. So they were already overvaluated, overreached. They were just not making that happen because the investments that they had in real estate obligations were just staggering. Uh, so the, the pandemic was, of course, something that they couldn't bridge. Uh, the, the things that they had to pay to their lease contracts, etc., were so high that, of course, already a company in uh, in distress, it just blew them away. But the guy, Adam Newman, he walked away with $1.7 billion. And they're not saying like about Adam good, well done, like they did for Taylor. So I think that's a, that's a nice thing to observe. Like if you see the guy, he's extremely weird. <laughs> he talks a little bit like a monk or something. And he's also applying the same secrecy about his new startup. Is he in real estate in, in Miami or so now? He, again, is founding a real estate company. It's called Flow. And instead of like offices, he's now 
turning actually to the home <laughs> because working from home, of course, is a, is a thing that he sees happening. So he now thinks that the same thing or a similar thing will happen, but that we have to create places for communities where people live together, work together. And there's just a web page where you go to and then you have a media inquiry, you have partnerships, and then they seek um, for people who want to work there. And that's about it. But also interesting is actually that the company Flow that nobody knows about and just have one homepage is already a unicorn as well, actually, because uh, Andreessen Horowitz has already invested 350 million in the company. Wow. So really, really exciting to sort of follow what Adam is going to do next. I mean, he said that the company was going to launch this year, we're November, so it's it's really an intriguing month to see whether we will see more about Flow Chile, in the months to come. We're going to Miami on a customer culture tour. Can we try to to meet him <laughs> <We might>. there, <laughs> uh, through our friends of Andreessen Horowitz? That would be that would be a good visit. Let's try that. <laughs> I'm not sure he'll say something. I don't even, know. I don't so know we'll, we'll try. We'll try. He will give a speech. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think honestly, the, the reason why we were crashly is is not because of the pandemic. No, I no. think, or you pointed out, the financials, the fundamental financials were just absolutely dead wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you take out long-term leases that are incredibly expensive, and you're trying to back that up with short-term income, I mean, it was it was flawed from the beginning. Everybody thought the guy was nuts. And I think the only reason why we have the situation with WeWork is because of SoftBank, because of the investor. Mm -hmm. I mean, SoftBank is the craziest investor that we have seen in ages. And SoftBank is the company that just, you know, believed in Adam Newman's crazy ideas. And Masayoshi's son, the, the founder of SoftBank, is probably going to go down in history as the guy who made the most money and was the best investor ever by investing in Alibaba early on. And then I think he's probably at the same time going to win the award of the worst investor ever. <laughs> yeah? Exactly. Because he believed people like Adam Newman. I think it's, honestly, WeWork is so closely connected to just really poor judgment on SoftBank. And financially, the guy is a joke. And, and so I'd be really interested. I have no idea why people would still invest in somebody like him. But that would be my question, Peter. Like, we yeah. know the people from Andreessen Horowitz. We worked often together with them. They seem like very smart investors. Huh? They got a great reputation. Now they invested in him. Why? Or, you know. Uh, uh. Maybe you just want to have fun in Miami from time to time <laughs> and listen to the craziest guy yeah. in the U.S. But it's fascinating. <laughs> so. I mean, now we've seen We Crashed. And I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, you guys were there early days. Has We Were always been like the really bad thing that we're talking about now? Because now it's evident it's a bad guy. But has it always been that unpopular? I remember in the early days of WeWork, everybody in real estate said the guy is nuts. nuts. The guy is doing things that are just absolutely never going to work. But if you could sell him a long-term lease and make a shitload of money, why wouldn't you do it? So if you always have a fool and the fool is willing to pay, go ahead, right? And as long as they had backers like SoftBank who poured in a lot of money, I mean, the fact that he walked away with that amount of, of wealth is, I think, terrible because I think that really puts a really, really bad vision and image on the world of entrepreneurs. And I think we don't need more Adam Newmans. We need less Adam Newmans. I'm really glad that today we're in an investment climate where I think people are a lot more realistic. Yeah, just one thing on that. When um, talking about WeWork in China, it worked pretty well, actually, WeWork. Yeah. And that had a, a cultural reason as well. 
because for Chinese culturally, I mean, they like to work together with people they know. And so the office is, is a natural. But for startups and young generation, they wanted to go in a different direction. And there wasn't the communities in the companies that could offer that. So they felt very safe and secure in, in a WeWork environment where they could meet other people within a certain concept of community. And so that community concept worked very well in China. And I think during the pandemic, because the first two years China was still running, I assume some of the money that uh, WeWork was still generating was actually in, back in China, just because uh, they still kept going. Mm -hmm. So there was some positive in a cultural and community change of mind so that the young startups in China could dare to go out and do things, which before they had to do within a certain formula and certain uh, organization. And now they felt they could actually change their own life and their own purpose. So I do see WeWork being very good for the, the transformation of Chinese startups. There are also a lot of people saying like, now is the time to sort of take it over and take the good leases that actually are working and, and make it a way more uh, sound and healthy business. Uh, like in real estate, it's the third investor that makes the money. SoftBank obviously wasn't the third one. So they'll remain the bad guy or the loser in the story. But there are quite some people recommending like, who's going to buy this and what's going to happen with the good ones? Because now, because of the bankruptcy, of course, they can cancel all the bad lease uh, contracts that they don't want to pay and are not profitable at all. So yeah, I think intriguing to see how the future of the workspace is going to evolve. And yeah. to, to Adam's point, I still think it's fascinating. Like, why does the guy, 1.7 billion, why does why does he do it again? Uh, to your point, Peter, because he could also just walk away and, and be silent and disappear. And I do think to say something positive about him, if you listen to what he's saying, he does say that there are mistakes and that he should learn from them. And then again, I also think it's important that people, maybe not that that is the case of Adam Newman, but that we shouldn't like slash it down if you made a mistake that far. It's also like the surroundings of people around him, they should have also not invested in him and give him the better feedback. So curious how that broship, uh, as they call it in Silicon Valley, is going to evolve and, and um, yeah, remain as sound as it is, apparently. But, but if you want my personal opinion, why he doesn't just go to the Bahamas and, and stay there is because if you've had a high profile like him and you have gone through the sky and then crashed completely, if they make an Apple TV series about you, about how stupid you've been, wouldn't you want to show the world that you're not a complete nitwit and that you can actually do something valuable? I, that's probably very deeply human. <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> Shall we talk a bit about uh, artificial intelligence, guys? Yes. Surprise! Our monthly <laughs> AI thing. Laurence, you want to talk about the human AI pin. What is it exactly and how is it different from other virtual assistants? Well, I just want to start with the best description that I read of that device by Ars Technica, which said it is as if Google Glass had a baby with a pager from the 1990s, which is <laughs> a, pretty, right, yeah. a pretty great description, I think. Um, so what is it? Well, it's a small, square, slightly rounded device that you can wear on your clothing, which basically offers a UA virtual assistant. Um, it's an AI-first device that is built on Humane's own AI, which is proprietary. And it works with multiple LLMs like uh, OpenAI's GPT-4. Though I have to say, in all the things I read about it, I never saw any mention of other LLMs. Uh, so I really wonder who those are. But basically, it has a camera. 
It has a microphone and it has motion sensors and you interact with it via um, tapping on it via gestures, voice commands. And also, which is pretty cool, it has a laser projector that shows a laser ink display on your hands. So you can... And it's very small, Eloraz. It's like... Two centimeter by yes. two centimeter it's, or something. It's very like that, small. Right? It's a little like, bit bigger, I think. I, bigger. I, I like the idea of it's like a pager. Probably a very good description. <laughs> yeah. It is like a small pager that you can wear on your shirt, and it's actually it's pretty heavy. That, that was one of the things that I heard. It's it's heavy like a tennis ball, but if you put that on a blouse or on a t-shirt, I don't think it's a great UX, but that's something else. But we're so gonna what, have some uh, you know malfunctions in the wardrobe <laughs> department. I, I really <laughs> so. think that, but but they do have a version that is slightly lighter. They explicitly said that for if you have a silk blouse or something or workwear, but I still think it's pretty heavy. So I don't think that's a great user experience. But what can it do? It can take photos. Um, you can do calls with it. You can send texts. You can do web search, identify objects. All in all, I think it's pretty standard stuff, only with a different type of interface and interaction. I think probably the most interesting part here is that they say that it's LLM and AI first, and that you, for instance, can ask it contextual questions. Like Peter could ask it, well, when do I need to do the dry run at the Gartner conference? And it would sift through his emails um, and other documents and just give the answer. It also has uh, commands like catch me up, and then it gives users important updates in the inbox. I'm curious, did any of you guys ever have a pager? No. No. I had a pager. Yeah, yeah I did. I, I, I did as well. I have a winner. <laughs> I had friends with a pager. I still have a pager. <laughs> you still have a pager. <laughs> so who's beeping you on that it's pager? It's my collection. Oh. It's a pager part of my collection. I thought maybe you still had someone who only contacts you through that pager these days. But <laughs> No, I, I think the pager network actually doesn't work anymore. I think uh, that has probably been oh, the same. No, no, but no. Um, yeah, no. early days. Yeah. So yeah, no, in, in China, everybody had a pager because they were late at the mobile phone. I mean, 3G was late. And so I had one in China. It was, was fabulous because this was the way to get contacted. And most people then just went to a public phone to, to make a phone call afterwards, which was quite interesting. This has been the start of WeChat, by the way. It's because of the pager technology that they were able to be the first one to send data and not just, I want to contact you, I want to talk to you, but send actually some data on the pager that they got popular uh, as a company. So WeChat started with pagers, and this is how they became big. And so <laughs> I love pagers. And, and back in the time, everybody had it on his belt. And so yeah, I it's, see that I, it's a cool device. Flourishing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love pagers. I love pagers. And, and yeah. so I'm sure this is going to come back okay. in this new form. Uh, Laurence is completely right. Uh, I think China is <laughs> going to take off. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. No, of course. <laughs> hey, uh, Laurence, Laurence, before we get all hooked up on the pager thing, yes. uh, will this AI pin be the new killer AI device? What do you think? First, I want to take back a few steps because the conversation about an AI device, it really started before the launch of the human AI pin. I don't know if you remember this, but in September, there were rumors about OpenAI uh, CEO Sam Altman that sat together with uh, design rock star John Ivey, who worked together with Steve Jobs and for Apple, and also Masayoshi Son, who we talked about earlier, CEO of SoftBank. And the rumors were that they had been discussing the design of an unspecified new AI device. So this conversation has been going on for a while now. But so what could the next AI killer device be? I think 
I see four interesting use cases. First, you have the, the wearables like human AI pin. But I have to say, really, I am underwhelmed <laughs> about what it can do, like a glorified pager. But I'm not sure also about UX and user friendliness because it's supposed to replace the smartphone. But I have to say, it really still is a lot of hassle with all the tapping and the motioning and the laser display. And at the end of the day, that's what the people of Verge say. It is basically a smartphone, but without a screen. So is it a pager? Is it a smartphone? It's not perfect. And I'm not sure if this is a device interface, um, an interface that's the best way to interact with large language models. Um, because I think that a generative AI device should be multimodal in both input and in output. And the AI pin is not very multimodal in output because you can see pictures on your hand display, but it's pixelated, it's low quality. And also I have to say, I have some minor Theranos vibes here um, because just, I don't know if you saw the founders. What kind of vibes, uh, Laurent? Theranos. Theranos, uh, the, the company of, bad guys. of, uh, of Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> Adam guys. Huh? What? <laughs> the bad guys, like Adam, yeah. like bad entrepreneurs. But, but, you know, Google, Google the founders and then you will see that they are basically a hipper version of Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani. Uh, just hipper looking. And I see... They're Apple employees, right? Yes, Didn't yes, yes, yes. used to work for... Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you were going to say that, right? Yeah, I, I was <laughs> going to say that, but thank you for saying it, yeah. But Laurent, don't you think that it, I saw it and I didn't have the feeling that I would buy it like another device on my shirt and with lasers? No, it's complicated. I, mean, I have my I have my watch. It's I complicated. Have my phone. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? Doesn't it make more sense that the next killer AI device is our phone or connected with our watch and those kind of things? Now that's something new. You sound like the people, you know, probably with the pagers that I have my pager. Well, what more could you want? You know, it does everything. See I the need two to pager guys. It even has a WeChat. Yeah. The two pager guys get really wild about the idea. So and probably this is going to be successful. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I'm sure it's going to be a hit. Group, then, <laughs> no, 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 but I absolutely yeah. agree. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely agree. I don't think that this is the killer device for the next AI era. And, and also, I think it's important to know that's why I said that I had Theranos vibes because, well, they have a, a lot of hype. They had a lot of great marketing. They have a lot of great PR. They are from Apple, so that should not be a surprise. But it's very hush-hush. They don't allow product reviews. There is no testing. People could not take any pictures. Um, there's lots of features. Well, they got that from the yeah, Apple book. Yeah, there's <laughs> lots of features that they say it's under development. They have great investors like Sam Altman. Even they invite, it's really weird, they invited a journalist from The Verge to the launch and then he arrived and they completely ghosted him and he could not attend the event. So it's like super hush-hush and they are talking about this great product, but there really isn't yet a product. Yeah. For me, it reminds me to all those little robots that you saw on all those crowdfunding yeah. platforms yeah. years ago. That would be your home assistant. Mm -hmm. that, and the videos were all super cute. I bought, I think, three of them and it was all one big disaster. <laughs> three. No, yeah, no. three different ones and none of them did anything it promised. So I, I, I'm really curious if this is going to be something. I'm not part of the pager generation, so I'm less excited than Pascal and Peter. <laughs> no, but I think it's 
about iteration. And I think this is the first iteration and people are going to come up with new ideas. And, and so the Chinese will have copied it before <laughs> it's even launched. Um, and so they will have like 20,000 different versions and, and some of them will work and some of them will not work. And some of them will, will then suddenly within certain industries be a big hit. And I think within specifically industry-related learning, I think this could be very interesting, uh, where you can't use your hands in certain points. I mean, it could be a very interesting. So I'm very bullish, but I don't think this version is probably going to be the final one. There are two or three other things that I see that could be interesting for an AI device. Potentially interesting could be the brain-computer interfaces, like Neuralink and uh, those of BlackRock, Neurotech or Synchron. They are quite invasive, yes, most of them are, because some of them are wearables. There will be privacy and security issues, but I think that's probably in the long term, obviously, because now they are not yet uh, enough developed. But if you complain about that little pager thing that's too heavy, I mean, imagine, you know, the, the whole, that's just something that's a little heavy on your blouse or on your shirt. Uh -huh. Imagine, you know, the whole idea of plugging something into your brain. I mean, I honestly... <laughs> yeah, but, but you have you have invasive and non-invasive ones, you know, um, and we talked about it, about the invasive ones last time, about the, the person who had a bionic eye and then it was discontinued. People are now worried about drinking Diet Coke because maybe the stuff in Diet Coke is going to give you cancer. Imagine, <laughs> you know, stuff that's going to oh, yeah, interface no. with your brain. I mean, come on. Yeah. I, I, that's going to be a long time before we see that. On the other hand, they're mm -hmm. talking about that for years. People are still drinking Diet Coke. So, I mean... <laughs> in, my, in my thrillers, I worked with a small earpiece that had perfect voice and AI and a small screen that you could carry on your arm and then people could just talk and if you needed a screen you did like this i like the idea that you would add vision mm -hmm. to our environment because steven you said i already have a watch i already have a phone that's great but one of the things that i think is really interesting is something that understands the environment around you and that's mm -hmm. what i loved about the yeah. google glass which didn't work and that's what i loved about all the other glasses because they have a connection to what you're seeing. And mm -hmm. I think, honestly, I would pay a shitload of money to have a device that whenever I meet somebody, it would tell me who that person mm -hmm. is. That me is too. something that me I too. would spend <laughs> a lot of money. I, re I remember Peter, after the pandemic, that he was saying, like, I miss those little names <laughs> at the bottom of our screen yeah. that told me, this is Julie, this is Stephen, yeah. this is Laurence. <laughs> so yeah, back yeah. to those days. Yeah, me too. Well, the, the king of Belgium has one of those devices. It's the person <laughs> that stands next to him and tells him who, who everybody is. It was fantastic without any doubt. But, but that was actually one of the next ones that I was going to say. So I think potentially interesting could be the brain-computer interface. The other one could be the smart glasses. And you talked about Google Glass, but I think that the smart glasses plus artificial intelligence that it's meta is really betting on that with their Ray-Ban smart glasses and the Quest 3. And obviously and also Apple, the Apple yeah. Vision Pro 2. Yes. Yeah. And then yeah. the last one, I think perhaps people will probably think less about that as, as some kind of interface, but I think robots, because robots would be contextual and multimodal because you could have your own personal assistant following you around recording what's happening around you and, and everything that you do and say and you may think yeah we're not there okay that's true but you have Google um, that has the palm model uh, and it has integrated that into a robot and it really understands natural language instructions and it can navigate around an unstructured physical environment and you could ask it things like fetch me the milk from the fridge and so the last thing that I want to say but 
because Stephen also asked it, but what about the smartphone? Why can't we just use smartphones? And one of the things that I wonder here is that could generative AI be of some sorts the end of the era of apps and this maybe also of smartphones. And I have several reasons for thinking this. First of all, the human AI pin does not work with apps. Instead, it quickly understands what you need and it connects you to the right AI experience or service. Sam Altman, when he was asked about the device he was making with John Ive, he said, I won't make it a smartphone. There's no use to compete. He also had no idea what it will be yet. But the most interesting part is, I think, Bill Gates had this piece recently that he published about that this is the era of agents. And so what is an agent? It's something that responds to natural language that can accomplish many different tasks. And it's based on the knowledge of the user. And he said, well, in the era uh, of agents, we are going to interact very differently with software, very differently with apps. We'll no longer choose which software or app we will use. We will no longer open them, but we will use natural language and the device will choose the application and it will accomplish the tasks across the different applications. And so maybe apps will not disappear, but maybe they will become invisible. And if we no longer interact directly with apps, the question I have is, are smartphones going to be the best device for the next AI era? And I think just as a last thing, that theory could also be supported by a recent report by Andreessen Horowitz, and they said that consumer AI products are mostly, for now, browser-first rather than app-first. Even ChatGPT took six months to launch a mobile app, and uh, you see that app building is really not a priority for the generative AI builders. And I wonder if this could mean something. Also, at the launch of the GPT-4 Turbo um, Altman introduced, I think maybe Peter was going to talk about that too, uh, the custom GPTs. These are GPTs that you can easily train with your own data. Um, Altman even hinted at a GPT store. And he also is no longer talking about apps. So personally, this is of course not going to happen tomorrow. But personally, I'm not sure if the smartphone will be the killer device for the next AI era. And I'm really curious uh, to find out what Sam Altman is going to make together with John Ivey and Masayoshi-san. I just have a question for Peter here, basically. I mean, there's so much happening with AI and you have a number of topics that you want to talk about as well. But my feeling is that Apple has always been slow at this. I mean, Siri is like the worst voice assistant of the team. And I don't see many movements there. Is that a, a, a misperception for me? Or is there a reason why they are slower? I mean, the, it, it would make a lot of sense with, with all the smartphones that they have that they would be playing a leading role in that field. But I don't see it. No, and it's a fair point. And one of the strange things is if you look at... The company that has done most acquisitions in the field of AI, it's actually Apple. So Apple has been buying up a lot of companies that are AI-related over the last three, four years. Uh, I saw a report that they're actually the outlier. They are the ones that actually acquire most of it. That could mean two things. One, they cannot build a lot of that technology in-house because they don't have that foundation, expertise, and skill set. So they need to go out and buy it. It could mean, too, that they're building up an army of AI-related stuff that we haven't just seen yet, and they're waiting for it to surface. Or three, it could mean that they just have a lot of money, <laughs> just buy, buy whatever they want, stuff, yeah. and see this as an insurance policy. But you're absolutely right in terms of 
really putting it out there, we haven't seen that. Although I do believe that once we're going to have the new headset, I think there's going to be so much embedded AI into that. I think Apple is going to be the king of embedded AI, not mm -hmm. the very visible stuff like OpenAI does, yeah. but just making sure that it's invisible mm -hmm. and just completely there, which you know is going to help us as, as users and consumers, but not as a separate thing. It's just part of the whole yeah. package, I think that's probably the route that Apple is taking. Yeah. Well, you would expect with the new glasses that maybe Siri would have a more prominent role as well so that you can speak to your glasses as there's probably not going to be a, a hand interface that is so easy as the phone. So I would, I would have assumed that that would have improved in quality a bit more over the past few years. Mm. Uh, if, if I look at uh, the Chinese cell phone manufacturers, they're going 100% uh, towards uh, embedded AI themselves. I mean, Oppo, as well known as others, but they're the fifth biggest cell phone brand in the world. And they're going full head with AI and they're trying to figure out even how they can have these um, large language models in, in a very smaller area, meaning with less data, run on the cell phone itself for specific applications that are needed. And so this is a new uh, development they're doing. Huawei is going full speed into that uh, Gen AI. You're seeing the same with Xiaomi, the Chinese Apple. So I, I think there's a trend going on there, but it's indeed different. I think it's really about industry applications or consumer applications that are very specific and that you won't even notice. Right. Um, Peter, I'm going to give the word to you. You prepared a, a few topics on the latest things you've seen on AI. Well, I, I think uh, for me, it's a fascinating journey every single week. Stuff happens. But a couple of them stand out. And, and I'd like to start with the Bletchley Park AI Safety Summit. I think that was uh, one of the most fascinating things that I have observed in a long time. So the world leaders came together to talk about AI safety. The top technology leaders in the world came together to talk about AI safety. So it was the place to be. And Bletchley Park, of course, is the best place to do that. It, it's, as you know, almost like the birthplace of computer science and AI that we have today. Bletchley Park is where you know, Turing worked on the machine, the first computer that actually cracked the, the German Enigma uh, machine. So it was a very historic thing. But I don't know if you saw the pictures. It was like Davos. It was like you had to be there, but it was like the Davos of AI. It's where world leaders and business leaders come together. First of all, it was an absolute PR stunt for the prime minister of the UK, Richie Sunak, Sunak is desperately trying to uh, take the world's attention away from the terrible situation of the UK economy and is doing everything he can to actually come into the limelight. And Sunak said, this is my time to shine. And I don't know if you've seen the interview that Sunak did with Elon Musk, but it was all about public relations. It was PR, PR, PR. But it was interesting. It was a really good concentration of the best tech and world leaders. We had Ursula von der Leyen there from the European Commission. We had Kamala Harris there, the vice president of, of the US. But what is fascinating is for a, a couple of days, the whole attention of the world of AI was on Bletchley Park. But the real bombshell that actually happened was on the Monday of that week, we saw the executive order on AI from the White House. And I don't know if you guys had a chance to read the executive order. It's a really long 80-page document. But this was probably the most incredible thing that I have seen in terms of trying to understand where AI regulation is going to go. 
don't know if you know the rumor, but the rumor is that President Joe Biden actually became very interested in AI when he watched the latest Mission Impossible movie <laughs> at Camp David. So uh, at Camp David, when he goes there, which is basically his offsite vacation home, there is always a movie selection and they selected the latest Mission Impossible and there Tom Cruise has to fight an evil AI called The Entity. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie or not, huh? but Joe Biden apparently was so completely blown away by the fact that artificial intelligence could be bad that he said, <laughs> we have to do something about this. It's a wonderful story, right? So he then actually put the wheels in order. And it's not Joe Biden who wrote that, of course, but it is an absolute bombshell, that document. And there are two things for me that stand out. One is the Executive order on AI clearly says AI could be amazing, could be really scary, what we've said all along, but the US needs to be the absolute power in the world of AI and remain that for the foreseeable future. To give you an idea, one of the elements that is in the executive order is that somebody in the world trains a large language model, an AI model, there is a reporting duty to the White House. So if you are training a large language model on Microsoft Azure or on AWS or on Google Cloud, there is a reporting duty into the White House. So um, a lot of the hyperscalers in the US didn't like that because they have a lot of customers in Europe, for example, who said, I'm not so comfortable that if I'm gonna train a large language model on one of these cloud providers, that the White House needs to know about this. Let me make an analogy here that I like. Suppose that in the world of automotive, there will be only wind tunnels in the US. So Amazon has a wind tunnel and Microsoft has a wind tunnel and Google has a wind tunnel. And whenever somebody makes a car, you need a wind tunnel to test the aerodynamics. So suppose that BMW or Mercedes would have to fly a car to the US, put it into a US wind tunnel, and the White House would know about the specifications of the car they're testing. How would you like that if you were BMW or Mercedes? So that is an absolute bombshell. And it clearly shows the US wants to remain the number one player in AI in the world. And I think here in Europe, we, we have to seriously think about that because the fact that we don't have so much AI activity in Europe is also now linked to the fact that we don't have cloud computing infrastructure in Europe. Yes. So you can clearly see that AI is standing on the shoulders of giants. And without a cloud infrastructure, without a hyperscaler, you are basically a babe in the woods. The second thing that was the bombshell in the executive order is that they are massively going to anchor AI talent in the US. Turns out, and this is an interesting statistic, that only 20% of the AI researchers working on AI in the US actually got their diploma in the United States. Only 20%, which means that 80% of the talent that is working to keep America the number one AI country in the world is not US. Huh? Chinese. Well, Chinese, <laughs> Indian, Indian, a lot of yep. Indians, yep. a lot of Europeans. 
I mean, it's been fascinating yep. to work with Google and Microsoft over the last yeah, couple of months and see how many European researchers that are brilliant are now working on that. And the US is going to, you remember under the Trump administration, there was a lot of difficulty in getting you know, US citizenship and green cards. The Biden administration says, no way. If we want to remain the number one country in the world on AI, we have to make sure that these people become US citizens. So they are opening the doors and I think we're gonna see an even bigger brain drain. So Bletchley Park was for me, PR, 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 an interesting debate about AI safety. But for me, the most interesting thing was the executive order. And I think it clearly shows this is now not just an AI war, it's an AI cold war. And I think that is going to get even more intense if you mention Cold War, you have to mention China here. And I really think this executive order is quite interesting from another perspective as well, that China had its own regulation already in August. Actually, in July, they were the first country in the world to have a Gen AI regulation came out. And the big discussion that was going on is in the UK, they would invite the Chinese to that summit, yes or no. And this was for weeks before that, they were like, yeah, but should we invite them or not? And most people in the U.S. say, don't invite the Chinese. I mean, we can't invite the Chinese. But ultimately, in the U.K., they decided to invite them because they said, yeah, if this is the second biggest AI superpower in the world, but also, just like you said, cloud computing everywhere, I mean, Alibaba, Tencent, and so on, I mean, if they are not part of the security of AI in the future, we, we are losing half of that knowledge and insights on what is happening. And so they did invite the Chinese, which was a big deal as well. So this whole thing about this executive order, if I look at it, I haven't read the whole 80 pages, but I read some summaries. I mean, there's a lot of similarity with what happened in July in China. But they, of course, the U.S. will never claim that they copied some of the ideas that came from China, because for them, it's, of course, about providing your uh, AI algorithms or whatever you build that has to be regulated. And so the Chinese government, and I wrote that in a newsletter in July, uh, requests all AI algorithms to actually be registered. And you, just like in the US, you have to say where, where you're training your data on. So it's the exact same thing. And the interesting thing is that these bureaucrats in Beijing are becoming AI experts. And so it's really about raising the level of knowledge. It's a great example, Pascal, because you see that you know China and then now the US, the big loser here is Europe. I mean, because for a long time, Europe was the place where, you know, we've been talking about the European AI Act for such a long time. They decided not to release it this summer and they would have made a complete fool of themselves because it didn't even take Gen AI into account. Yep. And if you see Ursula von der Leyen there talking about values that they want to put into the European AI Act, it clearly shows they are being bypassed left and right by both the US and China at this moment. So I think Europe didn't, didn't really make a very strong image there at the Bletchley Park Summit. The U.S. is saying you have to tell us if you're going to use our technology for training large language models. But the question I have is, seriously, what are they going to do? Because if you have rules, you always see that if you have rules, especially in technology, that the companies are going to do 
everything that they can do to circumvent that. Just a small example. We know that NVIDIA cannot sell their most powerful chips, I forget the name, to China. Mm -hmm. And now yep. what have they done today? They have made a less powerful chip that they sell they to China. Understand. So it's not because the US will know that they will maybe especially can do something against it. What do you think, Peter? As I said, the hyperscalers was not very happy about that because they've been trying to avoid that whole geopolitical debate. If you talk to Microsoft, Microsoft says, my God, yeah, we're doing everything we can in terms of cloud sovereignty, for example, to make sure that we can make sure that you, know, you work within all the regulatory uh, requirements that you have in Europe, even if you work on a US hyperscaler. Now, all of a sudden, this just completely bypasses that again. So the technology companies are not happy. A lot of these technology companies don't really think you know, in terms of geopolitics, they think in terms of revenue and growth yeah, and scale sure. and market yeah. share. And, you know, companies like Google or Microsoft or Amazon, they just want to build things that people like and want to use. And, and I think you can clearly see now is we're trying to use local rules and regulations on global phenomena, and that just doesn't work anymore. And I, I think, you know, you can clearly see that there is a lot of annoyance with the tech companies on, on these types of rules. I'm more concerned about the talent thing, to be very honest, because mm -hmm. that talent thing, that is something where a country can make a big difference. Yeah? And honestly, if the US is going to become the haven where most of the really smart AI people in Europe want to go to because that's where the opportunities are, that I think is going to be even more significant than a reporting duty if you train a large language model or not. Yeah, and talking about talent, I mean, the Chinese are moving back to China, uh, many of the AI specialists, which means the Americans will only have the Europeans left and the Indians to, to, to get Ooh, them in the US. Our market value is going up. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's definitely big. So this is interesting. But to answer your, your question, Laurence, on, on NVIDIA, they indeed created a, a, a lower-end chip or a chip that mm -hmm. could be exported to China. The result is that Biden afterwards said, okay, we're going to block that as well. And so there was a new rumor and NVIDIA lost 5% of its stock price just on that rumor that this would be blocked. So this is a huge revenue issue. And the Chinese are going 100% into building their own AI chips now. So the whole issue is that Europe is completely left out. There's going to be AI chips from, from China, AI chips from the US and everywhere. And, and, and Europe will not have the chips probably not the talent as well. It's, it's, it's a huge battle going on right now. And you can't just block things and, and assume that people will simply just accept that. Specifically, if it's about becoming, I mean, staying a, a superpower and, and technological advanced uh, as, a, as a government so, and as a, as a society. But, you know, it's quite shocking, eh? the conclusion, and it's, I think it, it all makes a lot of sense. And we've seen what happened in the past with Europe because we were late with e-commerce, we were late with internet a little bit late with everything. What will the consequence be if, you know, if, if the situation will evolve like this? Like you have two AI superpowers in the world, we're like the ones missing out. Like if you would make an extrapolation of the evolution of that in, in let's say 10 years from now, what, what could the consequences be for Europe of our situation? I'll give one element, Stephen, which I've been doing a lot of, you know, thinking about recently. It's, it's the concept of data colonization, huh? mm -hmm. because what you have is you're in a situation now where wave after wave, you see that Europe has talent and ideas, but they're losing out on putting that into, you know, really scalable platforms. We lost on the web. 
we lost on mobile, we lost on the cloud, we're losing on AI. And it's not just the fact that we don't have our own cloud players here, but a significant amount of revenue is now being made by these cloud players that we're missing out on. And I think it's going to be even more impactful in the world of AI. And when you put in the data element or the content element, a lot of the large language models that are being trained have been trained on European content. I mean, a lot of scraping has happened in the last 10 years where that content has been used to build these large language models. If that is now going to become basically packaged up and then sold back to us, we are actually going to be paying for stuff that we had in the beginning, yeah, to companies that are not European companies. So I think that is going to have an impact long-term on our economic you know, capabilities. Ursula von der Leyen talks about values, but the US focuses on value creation. And that is a fundamentally yeah. different way of looking at things. And we have completely neglected that value creation aspect in when thinking about technology. Same in China. Hey, Pascal, to, to come to you, I mean, we've heard Peter's story. We heard the ambition of the US uh, want to be the world leader in terms of AI and the actions that they take. If you look at what's happened in the last four weeks uh, in China, like in Gen AI and the reactions of that, how is that evolving? And will the US succeed in being the number one superpower in artificial intelligence? Well, they do from a PR's point of view, um, because if I ask all of you, are you talking about Chinese examples or companies within your keynotes or presentations or what you write? Yeah. Uh, when it comes to Gen AI, I'm not sure if you do that quite often. I do that, of course, very often, but that's... <laughs> I don't, I yeah. don't, to be yep. honest. And so I the question is why? Of the so why are we not talking about, about Baidu? I'm not aware of what's happening in terms of Gen AI in China, in all honesty. And, and, I, I, and, and my view on it is, is that it's simply because so far it's been a real hype. I mean, on the Gartner cycle, it's, it's at the top of the hype right now. And this is all consumed by, by Western media that is really putting this all out there. Uh, in China, there's a lot of things happening. If you go back just a couple of years, then everybody was saying China is beating the US in terms of AI. And then on November 30th, when ChatGPT came out, suddenly it was like, no more talk about China and AI. It's as if it just disappeared and the number one superpower in AI uh, just didn't exist anymore. And so it's really the opposite. But what is true is that the US has a lead start. I mean, that's clear. And if you look at what uh, ChatGPT did and, and you look at others like Google and, and, and Amazon and so on, I mean, China is comparing itself constantly to those uh, same programs or those same large language models. So there's clear a comparison with the US. But there's been a lot of things happening, not just in the last four weeks, actually in the last year, since January, I would say, of the beginning of this year. But we haven't seen it because it was blocked in China. So OpenAI, so ChatGPT was blocked in China, Google was blocked in China. And the result of that is that the Chinese started using all this through VPNs, illegally, of course, and that hundreds and hundreds of Chinese companies started building illegal integrations into their own products. And the government now that is regulating all this has been cracking down on that. And today, you don't see so much anymore of this illegal US-driven AI coming into China. But what's interesting is everybody's back in China. And the past four or five weeks has been really crazy when it comes to AI. In general, the big guys, the BAT, you know what BAT stands for? Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent was the first internet companies. 
that everybody was talking about Biden's Alibaba Tencent the last years because Baidu was gone away in the internet area. What we forgot is that Baidu was focusing everything since 2014 on AI. And they've become, specifically in, in autonomous vehicles, the number one in AI on self-driving. And, and there are self-driving cars in China, and so it's really interesting what they did. But they're back now with Gen AI. And Baidu was one of the first companies to release their Ernie. Uh, Ernie Bot, it's called, and this refers to the Bart from Google. They wanted to have Bert and Ernie, so that's the whole thing. But the whole idea there, uh, they launched it in 2019. So this is like four years ago, uh, a first version. And if you look four years back, 2019, you compare with, with other models in the US, they were doing pretty well. And just uh, this month, uh, they, re they released Ernie 4. That's the last, uh, last version or the latest version, which according to Robin Lee, the, the founder uh, of Baidu, is as good as ChatGPT 4 in Chinese. What you do see is that most software developers are still using ChatGPT 4 and not using Baidu. But in the industrial space, so in the industries itself, you see a lot of it happening. Alibaba is doing great. It's actually the best AI platform, open platform out there right now. It's called Tongyi uh, Qianwen, so a thousand questions asked. And this is a, a platform that is very, because you, Peter, you said about cloud. I mean, they're 80% of all the cloud in China uh, is run on Alibaba. So 80% of the company, 80% of, of all the companies in China are run on, on Alibaba. And so they are offering industry solutions to any company out there. It was used on Singles Day for, this is interesting for you, uh, uh, Stephen, it was used on Singles Day for promotion of products to create new PR in campaigns automatically. I mean, All millions of different campaigns, uh, personalized yeah. campaigns. Very big success. And actually, uh, both Alibaba and JD.com did very well this year on Singles Day, uh, which was on the 11th of November. And so this is the two big players uh, of the bat. And then you have Tencent. Tencent's been a little bit quiet on Gen AI. But I can tell you, they're, they're also very much into it. But they're very cautious because, of course, Tencent has the biggest user base in China. And so they want to make sure when they come out with something, it's actually going to stick and it's going to work and, and, and do exactly what it's needed. So Tencent has now 180 different models as a service within its packages. So linked to WeChat, which means in finance, in, in media, in travel, in a lot of areas that is interesting to consumers, they're actually putting this embedded large language models already in their, in their products. And so companies that are linked to Tencent can now release this as a service itself within their products. So all three of them are doing really great on AI. Tencent is the last one to actually come out with a, a big push, but they're very cautious. But the one that nobody talks about and that in China everybody talks about is Huawei. Huawei is actually very big on AI. And we know Huawei, of course, from telecommunication. And so they've never been really a software developer company, but they are going full speed ahead. It means that for the next 10 years, the big push for Huawei is AI everywhere. And so you see with their new model, which is called Panu. Hangu AI is, is a new model that has been released 3.0 just in July, where they go into every vertical you can imagine. So they're going into government services, they're going into railroad, they're going into mining, they're going into weather forecast, anything you can imagine to make it easier for the employees, for the people managing and for customer service, how to deal with all that. So a lot of things happening. These are the big guys. And also Huawei developed chips for AI, no? 
Yes, and that is one other thing. It's good you mention it because Huawei is the only company that is only using their own chips for AI. All the others are using NVIDIA chips, and some have started to buy the Huawei chips, but they need them themselves for their Mate 60 and other products that they're launching. So they need their own chips. But Huawei is building their own chips with high silicon. And so it's, it's very clear that it's not just about talent, which China is now getting. It's not just about cloud, but it's also about chips. And chips is, is the big push in China now. But besides the big four that we talked about, and there's also a lot of AI companies that were very popular before. I don't know if you remember companies in my first book I wrote about SenseTime or McVi or E2. I mean, these like face recognition companies or, or like medical AI and stuff like that. And iFly tech with translators. And, and so all these companies are now all into gen AI. And China right now has 130 large language models. This was in the summer. It might be more right now. So that's more than 100 companies that are all focusing with their own language model. This is estimated to be about 40% of the world's large language models, and the US has about 50%, so that leaves Europe and the rest of the world with 10%, if I can calculate this well. Um, but this is the whole idea that everybody's on it. To finish with, I want to talk about three interesting companies, which are new unicorns. And these are companies that we are talking in China about that they could become the big thing over time. And the reason they could become the big thing is that they're all invested by both Tencent and Alibaba. And this is interesting. Why? Because if Tencent and Alibaba, who are the biggest competitors, are investing in a new startup, you know something's boiling, something's happening. And the first one is Baichuan. And Baichuan is actually uh, built by the founder of Sogo. This is a search engine. It was one of the most popular search engines in the early of 21st century. And what's interesting is that Tencent has bought this company. So Tencent is actually integrated this in WeChat. And so WeChat search is based on Sogo. Sogo means search the dog, but that's just Chinese. But search the dog? Search the dog, yes. <laughs> so where the dog goes, you will find the information. <laughs> so, but the whole idea is that this is a, a company built by this founder. And he already says he's beaten Anthropic and has more context windows and lots of things. So th there's a lot of claims being done now that they're at the same level as anybody. It's, it's a unicorn. They've been invested like hundreds of millions of dollars by Alibaba and Tencent. The other one is Zipu. And Zipu comes from Tsinghua University, the best university in China. Um, and this is bilingual, which is also good to know. Some of these algorithms are not bilingual, but many are. And the one in Alibaba, the one in Zhepu are bilingual. And so many people claim China will never catch up because the Chinese language is limited and so on. But they just use the global databases and then they translate that automatically with AI as well. So they, they can use the same aspects. But this is a bilingual one. And the last one I want to talk about is about the one that Kai Fu Li has released uh, just, uh, I think it was early November, just, just very recent, which is also a bilingual one. And Li Kai-Fu wrote the book, uh, AI Superpowers. I don't know if you've read that book, but it's a fantastic yep, book. Yeah, fantastic book. Um, which was released uh, just while I was writing my book, <laughs> at the first book. But this was really the AI guy in China. And he was the ex-Google CEO in China. Uh, he was also leading Microsoft Research. And if you know anything about China and AI, you know that every AI talent somehow goes back to the Microsoft Research Asia group in Beijing. 
So Microsoft, going back to what's happening in the US now with OpenAI, I mean, it all goes back to Microsoft again. And so this is where China is going very much into building, or, or Li Kaifu is into building this new application, this new large language models. It's a unicorn already. I mean, it's seven months old, this company, being invested by big companies. But it's, it's mainly interesting how it's, as Peter says, a war of talent. And that's both Li Kaifu, but also Tsinghua University, and then the founder of Sogu linked to Tencent, that they're all trying to claim we have the best talent in the world. And a lot of that talent actually has been trained at Google, has been trained at Microsoft in the US, is now in China. And so my conclusion on all this is that Gen AI, large language models, are more than alive in China. It's a real battle that is starting now. I think you could claim easily that they're like three to nine months behind, depending on which model you're looking compared to the US. But there's a few things that I, I wanted to say about why I believe this is going to be the big thing in China and that we will all be watching this uh, very soon. One is that, you know, the copy creates issue. I mean, Chinese like to copy. So Gen AI is just, it helps their productivity. It helps to get them better results. They don't care who built it. They don't care about the creation, who created it, much less than we do. We are much more careful and thinking more about, is this okay? Is this not okay? The Chinese are going full speed ahead. Of course, you need governance. We talked about that as well. But the one thing that nobody talks about is the service industry. China is a very young service industry. We have like, I don't know how much of our GDP is, is service related. I think in Belgium, it's 99%. I mean, <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but in Hong Kong, it's more than 90% almost. But in, in Belgium, it's definitely above 50%. China is, is way down there. And so that means that now suddenly, this is a new industry that could pop up with Gen AI, something that's actually the Chinese are, have been waiting for, just like the digital transformation or mobile transformation that China underwent after 2008, this could happen again now in the service industry. And so going from the factory of the world into the service providers of the world, I see with all that brain talent, something happening. And then the US blockage is not helping either. China just needs to build more themselves. And that service industry is something that I find fascinating. I've never thought about it because we always think of China yep. as you know, the factory of the world. Uh, yep. and, and now the most advanced factory in the world. But if it's going to leapfrog in terms of service with Gen AI, that's a whole new kettle of fish. Yep. That's really interesting. You know? Yeah. And, and this is definitely a trend that I see. Uh, I mean, I see nobody talking about this, but I see it happening on the ground. Where if you look at the Baidus, the Alibabas, the Huawei's, I mean, everything they do with Gen AI is really to improve the service and customer experience. Uh, to improve the product uh, releases and stuff like that. So it's really about providing financial service, about medical service, about everything and using G Gen AI to do that. So we're starting a big new trend in my view. And then typically there's a red ocean concept in China where there's hundreds of large language models. They're all competing. 99% are going to die. There's going to be 10 or 15 remaining, and they're going to be on the radar, definitely on our radar, but I think on the world's radar as well. One thing that I wanted to mention also, which is uh, we're going to go, I mean, uh, to, the, to China in April, to the south of China, and 50% of the Gen AI companies are in the north of China in Beijing, but there's huge companies like Tencent, like uh, Huawei, like SenseTime, like uh, iFlyTech, all in, in that area. We're definitely going to visit some of them and see a little bit unraveling that black box and see what they're doing. 
Very cool. If people want to join on that tour with uh, Pascal, they can go to our Nextworks website and there you find the program where Pascal will guide you to China in April, right? Very well. Yes, I will. <laughs> with a lot of energy. <laughs> can I just add something to what Pascal said when he was talking about the fact that Tencent and Alibaba had been in investing in many companies? And one of the things I've noticed in the generative AI industry is that It's pretty entangled. For instance, if you look at, at NVIDIA has invested in Databricks, in Hugging Face, in Cohere, in Inflection AI, and then you have OpenAI that was invested in by Microsoft and by Amazon. And also that's investment-wise, but also talent-wise, like the founding team from Musk's XAI comes from Google, comes from Microsoft, comes from OpenAI. One of the things I find really fascinating is really how entangled all of these companies are with each other in one way or another and it's almost like this incestuous environment or something it's uh, well, it's, it's because it's about people eh? yeah yeah and people people know people yeah. and in the in definitely in the Chinese culture um, I'm assuming the same in the US but in Chinese culture I mean if you know each other then you build things together and so what's interesting when it comes to to the Chinese big investors the Baidu's the Alibaba the Tencent is that they're both investing in this proxy AI like Peter talks about, but also doing their own. And so they're kind of doing this in parallel. And we've seen this with Alibaba, with Tencent, with Ant Financial. It's the same model always. We invest in the companies, we do our own, and then we see how we can work together. This is quite unique in China. I don't know about the US, but quite unique in China that usually they would even dare to have a spin-out out of uh, Alibaba, for example, starting a new company and then Alibaba funding that company in order to work with them later or even merge back later on. So this is very different. It's, it's because it's about people and because the talent on AI is limited and it's the best paying job in, in computer science or anything that is related to software today. So people want to be an AI expert. And they all know the smart guys. And so they're all trying to work together. And so you can't do it on your own anymore, exactly like you're saying. Uh, I mean, Laurence, it's, it's, it's becoming an ecosystem of AI in China. And I assume the same in the US. All right. Well, thank you all for this update on AI. I'm sure next month we will discuss new evolutions there. Julie, I'm going to give the last word to you. You want to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly in CX, diamond in the rough for employee experiences. So. Yeah, we would almost forgot, Stephen, that besides AI, that was uh, exciting times for you as well. You had a, a new book, uh, so I, I went to your lounge. Uh, so I'm all um, <laughs> brainstormed and, and like uh, I see things everywhere that will uh, relate to your book and examples everywhere. And um, maybe there, I mean, holidays are coming, Christmas is coming, Thanksgiving is coming in the US. Uh, maybe there are people that don't want to have a conversation about LLMs or AI or something, but they just really want a good sex story uh, at the table with their aunts or uncles. So, uh, Stephen, I would invite you to <laughs> join this brainstorm with me course, for some uh, good, bad and ugly stories about uh, sex that we've seen in the last couple of months. And basically, also maybe relevant to the holidays, I would like to talk about hotels, champagne and consultants. Um, always a good idea. Good combination. Um, with the turkey, right? Uh, and hotels, you definitely know what I'm going to talk about or what we are going to talk about, Stephen, because what is your new favorite hotel in the world? Tell me. 
my new favorite hotel in the world. I don't really have one, but you're looking for the Ritz Carlton, I assume. Is that no, what no, no, you no, say? No, 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 no. Because no, no, that's no, an that example one. in my book. Ah, I know what you mean, Julie. I know what you mean. Sorry. The Okura Hotel in Tokyo, where exactly. we stayed and had a wonderful time during our Tokyo tour. Yes, it's amazing. I mean, we talked about the Japanese hospitality, the omitsunashi mm -hmm. that you also use in your in your keynote, how they are so customer-centric. But we had a moment there. I'm not sure whether we mentioned it in our last episode, but no, there, was a, there was a sort of moment where we had um, a presentation by the hotel and also by the Dutch team of the Okura team who explained like how customer-centric are they? How do they do that? And one of our guests actually asked a pretty daring question to, to the manager and he said, like, the pajamas here are so cool. They're so nice. They're so stylish. Can we take them home? They um, give you a pajama on your bed. Eh? It's, it's not something that happens in every hotel, but you get this Okura branded, very nice pajama that is ready for you every evening when you go to bed. Yeah. And the idea is that you don't take it home, of course, but <laughs> that was sort of the embarrassing moment for the Japan, Japanese manager uh, having to... Uh, and the funny thing is the Japanese people cannot say no to a customer. So that question came in and they were like, okay, um, uh -oh. uh, uh, we're happy that you like the pajamas and the pajamas are from the hotel and it's a service. So they, they did say no. And the Dutch guy then said, he means no. Huh? So don't, don't take it. But that was really it was funny. also the Dutch guy who took it as an opportunity because the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is that same guest that asked the question, he was staying in the hotel in the Netherlands and he actually got a wardrobe with his name on, like in golden, really woven into the wardrobe letters It was his name and a little note like here, we might not have those same pajamas, but you have your wardrobe here that will always be ready for you. Even if you take it home or you want to keep it in your room, we will take care of it. And I mean, that was just amazing. Yeah, I, I think amazing it's the story. best story that I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> and I mean, Stephen, you have seen a lot of them, but this is really... No, no, really this one is, is amazing. So, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, a tip for other hotel chains. This the is the personal touch right was, was amazing. Huh? That's, it's, it's what they're really, really good at. But it's like, Julie, it, it's one of the examples. Remember what I said about uh, Taylor Swift? It's the micro ROI versus the macro exactly. ROI. This is not a good thing if you look at it from a macro ROI point of view. But in the long run, the in-depth relationship that they create by doing that is insane. And it's very true what you say about that also, I think, in your book with all the technology, all the I mean, streamlining convenience, this is where you can really excel and also make a difference. Yeah. So maybe if we want to make Europe the Disneyland of the world, we should sort of invest in this type of experience. I think that's what we'll have to, to do. <laughs> tourism. <laughs> tourism will be... Is that the ambition now? To turn Europe into the Disneyland of the world? <laughs> Stephen and I have a plan. We Come have on. Tourism. That, tourism, guys. <laughs> this is the Middle Ages that you can relive here. So. With pagers yeah. <laughs> for people. <laughs> No, but we do have to work on our um, champagne experience, though, because that was sort of the bad uh, experience okay. I had in the last couple of weeks. I went on a family weekend um, to the, the Champagne region. It's not so far away from, from Belgium. And we went to visit the cellars of Mercier. Are you familiar with the house? No, not really. I, no, I know the name, the... but I've never been there. 
But it's a huge brand. Um, it's also part of the LVMH group by now. Uh, but I love the the sort of story, like how it started. It was actually a, a great entrepreneur, Eugène Mercier, who really did also things differently in terms of storytelling. It was the time of the World Expo in Paris, uh, so 1900. And so the, the Eiffel Tower was the best experience, the best attraction back then. But his giant wine cask was the second best. Uh, so he really made the largest wine cask that you can imagine was full of champagne and they brought it from Epernay in the Champagne region all the way to Paris. So it was a huge event. People followed that. They had a, a rally in Paris. They had a balloon up in the air. And I mean, now we've seen that, but we're talking 1900, you know, so this guy was really a pioneer in terms of marketing, creating experience. And I was like, wow, what a heritage. And then you did the experience at Mercier today, which was quite a different ballgame. Um, first of all, if you go to the website, the one number they're really, really proud of, apparently, is that they already done 150,000 train rides through their sellers. That's the thing. Like, I mean, what? Well, I don't care, you know, how many you've done. That's not the thing I want to know. I got a thousand pop-ups on the website. So website experience, really not good. You're there, you get in the train, okay, nice storytelling, but then when you when you end the tour, you expect an equally nice experience. You're like hyped because this Eugène Mercier guy is like the marketing guy creating those experiences. And then you get into a place with like 30 people that were just on that train ride with you. You don't even get a table, you don't even get a chair. There's like a sort of champagne buffet where you quickly can uh, sort of take a glass and that's it. That's not good. But what the really bad thing was, was actually the start of all this. Because we had that train ride at 3 p.m. And we arrived at 10 past 3. But nowhere we got a sort of reminder like, hey, it's important you arrive at 3 p.m. Because otherwise you miss the train, etc. And it's also not that we didn't done that on purpose. We actually had a flat tire. And what did the lady say when we arrived at the desk and we're saying like, hey, sorry, we're late. We had a flat tire. Oh my God, bad bad day. I mean, help me out. Sorry, train's gone and we won't repay you. Sorry. That was sort of <laughs> the one sentence that we got. And we did a whole fuss of like rebooking it to the next day and then have that not like really overwhelming experience. And yeah, I think that's really a case for your book or, or maybe we should send them uh, a book. I, I really think uh, that every... One in the world should read my book. It's, it's, no, but really, this, <laughs> no, if, if, really? There's, if there's one book you have to read, it's because it's so easy to do things better without, you know, changing your company. And um, every day people come to me with stories like this now. And I'm always like, you know, Just it's so easy yes. to do it better. <laughs> I mean, yes. like someone told me last week that he did, did a phone call to his local bakery to order a cake. He called on Wednesday to have a cake on Saturday. So there were like two days in between. And he called at two uh, 10 in the afternoon and they said ah, as you can see on our websites we only take orders until two yeah but you still have three days you I mean there's it doesn't make sense uh it's on our website we don't take orders at two ten so no cake for you. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry you had a flat tire. Maybe uh, we'll have yeah. another opportunity tomorrow. It's so, so I mean, easy. But the good thing is I will never be out of a job because no, you know, true, the world is filled with those kind of stories. And we're talking global brands, right? You know, yeah. these yeah, guys have money. So I was so, uh, yeah, appalled by that. So yeah. don't, let's not buy Merci no. okay. for the holidays. Just okay. mentioning that. Also, if your niece asks or your cousin, where do you want to work? Who of you would say, hey, maybe you should consider McKinsey after the last month? 
<laughs> Pascal is laughing. <laughs> I, I want Peter's answer. <laughs> have you guys seen the movie? No, no, I haven't seen the movie. I have. I have. I have What's yeah. your opinion about the movie, Peter? <laughs> so I don't know if you watched the, the parody that that came out. Of course, last week. Uh, McKinsey is under a lot of stress at the moment. <laughs> uh, they've made some wrong choices. I think they had some really bad issues in the past. Uh, and at the same time, McKinsey is going through a massive transformation, as is any type of consulting firm, because with Gen AI, I mean, the old idea of basically charging a shitload of money for mediocre PowerPoints, I think is going to go out the mm -hmm. door. But as you know, I spent a year with McKinsey as an entrepreneur in residence between my first and second startup. And I still have a lot of very warm feelings for that family because it's probably the biggest collection of smart people I've ever seen in my life. But even smart people can make mistakes. Sure. And I mean, it's... um. Eugène Mercier probably also was a very smart guy, but that doesn't mean that they don't have to evolve as well. Or, I mean, I'm not working there, so I don't want to sort of judge them from the outside without uh, being there. But the only thing you can say, I mean, this parody, this movie was indeed like a 20-minute movie on Last Week Tonight by John Oliver. Like, but really rude statements. It's like, McKinsey, capable of anything, culpable for nothing. Like, they blamed how they chose their customers. It's like, really a full, full on attack. And it's just so apparent. It was all over the internet. I'm like, this is McKinsey. Nobody ever gets fired for hiring McKinsey because exactly what Peter said. They are like the institution, the authority. But in terms of if you're a customer today or you want to work for McKinsey, then you want an answer to these kind of sort of branding issues. So I think in terms of, and Stephen, I got this from your book, do you want to sell products or create positive change? My impression that is that McKinsey today is in a pretty ugly space uh, answering that sentence and that they should step up their game and, and sort of make sure you have an answer for that. Their CEO basically said after the scandals, like, yeah, there are plenty of places to work, so you can go work somewhere else if you don't like our style, which is, of course, true. But in terms of, I mean, share the positive stories you're creating, share how the places to work. I think, uh, I think they have work to do. And I think it's apparent because it's sort of the first time I'm seeing that from uh, from the firm. Cool. I haven't seen the film. I will watch it now. You should definitely watch it. Can I end this episode with a complaint? <laughs> we, we should call this the flagship podcast of CX Complaints <laughs> from now on. I think it's a good no, one. No, no, I have a complaint. I have a LinkedIn complaint. It's It's been two years now and I don't understand because... They put a cap on the maximum amount of connections that you can have. So 30,000, you cannot have more than 30,000 connections. You can still follow people. And I'm okay if they want to decide that for me, that's fine. Um, I would prefer to decide that for myself if I can have more than 30,000 connections. But they decided that, but they don't disenable the button where you can make a connection. So every day I have people that are trying to connect with me. I cannot accept it. And they sent angry messages. Stephen, why don't you accept my connection? And I always kindly reply to them, explaining it for LinkedIn, and then they understand. But it takes me time every day. I have unhappy people every day because of that. And I don't understand why LinkedIn, who should understand that professional networks are really crucial. That's the whole intention of their platform that they don't help us better with uh, with that. And I know they're going to say, yeah, but we recommend 30,000 is the max and you can follow people. That's all good. But improve the interface then so that people don't get disappointed and that they don't get angry at someone else who cannot really help it. 
So that's my complaint. LinkedIn community, if you hear it, <laughs> please help. It's a good time. You know, they're making plans for next year. So maybe you make it to the business plan. I hope so. I'm going to speak at their uh, flagship uh, LinkedIn ah. Connect event. Uh, <laughs> there, we go. There, uh, there we go. I'm the there we go. speaker there. So I'd be happy to raise your complaint uh, over there. Please, please do. I will take screenshots from all the complaints I'm getting from people. So you can use that and, and make some slides. Thank you, Peter, for addressing that. So we get it, Stephen. You, you're having all those positive stories from your book and like talking positivity <laughs> all day, every day that you also need a place I to need just it sort to of voice and your complaint. Yeah, I waited until the very last minute of the podcast. So probably we only have 50% of our listeners left at this time. So only the diehards will hear my, uh, my complaints. Thank you all for the discussions, the conversations, sharing your knowledge. Thanks for all our listeners for being here again. Thanks for all the positive comments that you give us throughout the month. That gives us a lot of energy to continue with this podcast. And uh, have a good day. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.